Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Good. Good. Good? It's week 13. Can you believe it? Here we go. Oh, well, too bad, guys. It's, it is. <laughs> Alrighty. I was trying to turn the lights up, but they actually are just as bright as they go. Okay. Um, can you put up your hand if you have handed in an assignment or a test in the last 24 hours? What? Nice. And put up your hand if you are going to hand in an assessment in the next 24 hours. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm very impressed. Put up your hand if you have at least four more assessments to go, exams or, or things to hand in? Five or more? Six or more? Yeah, you guys. Thanks so much for, for continuing to come along to Bible seminars. I'm, I'm really glad, actually, that you've given up your time to be here today. So um, let me just give my thanks to you. And it has been really good, hasn't it, to be able to meet together in Bible seminars. Um, I want to ask a question today that comes out of uh, our, our text. It's quite a long section of text, and, and unfortunately we haven't had time to read uh, every part of it. But the question that I want to ask is, is about how the, the pe pe people of Israel, we're told, they put the Lord God to the test. And it's pretty clear that that's not something they're supposed to do. But also in the text, the Lord God puts the Israelites to the test, and that is something that's right for him to do. So I guess, you know, it's, I guess it's pretty natural for us to ask the question, why is it right for God to put the people to the test, but not for the people to put God to the test? Uh, that's sort of the question that I'm coming to um, today with. And look, uh, like I said, there's, um, there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot to cover, but the, thing, the good news is that, you know, God hasn't left us in the dark about well, the nature of his test, or um, there's no need to be confused about what constitutes a fail or a pass. Uh, and if we do actually understand what's going on here, then we really will be more equipped to be God's disciples in the 21st century. Let's um, start by doing a flying overview of, um, of, of the chapters that we're looking at. We're starting at the end of chapter 15. And if you've been coming along, you know that the story has been that, you know, God's rescued the people out of Egypt through the Passover event when he uh, sent the plagues on the Egyptians and Pharaoh sent them out after his son died. And then they came to the Red Sea and they were stuck and trapped at the Red Sea. And God parted the waters miraculously and they came through. And now the Egyptians are in the rear view mirror and they're traveling there's a big bunch of them men women and children and their livestock as well and they're in the wilderness and so here's this big group of israelites traveling in the wilderness and the first thing that we read about in the at the very end of chapter 15 from verse 22 and onwards is they they've been wandering around in the wilderness and they haven't found any water for a few days and so they start to complain actually they find some water and it's bitter and it's undrinkable and what happens is that Moses, he finds, a, or God shows him a piece of wood or maybe a, a tree, puts it in the water, and somehow that makes the water uh, palatable. And they can drink it. And so they, uh, and we're told that the Lord put the people um, to the test in verse 25. There, the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, 
uh, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And so then um, the, at the very last verse of chapter 15, we find that they, they find this oasis in the middle of the desert. It, it's a place called Elim, and it has 12 springs, 70 palm trees. It's sort of like this perfect little oasis in the middle of the desert, but they, they have to keep moving. So we get to chapter 16. And chapter 16, we read that they keep going and the people start grumbling again. And this time they say, we wished that we were back in Egypt. It was so much better back then. In the good old days in Egypt, we had whatever meat we wanted to eat. We had whatever food we wanted. And now here we are, we're starving in the desert. And so God says, I'm going to bring you bread from heaven. And so uh, um, this is, uh, but this is the second time he says that he'll test them. In verse 4, uh, chapter 16, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And so the people go out and they discover in the morning, there's all around on the ground in the wilderness, there's this white, sweet something that, uh, that they can eat. And they call it manna. We would call it, what you may call it? Because that's what manna means. It just it means, is that their word for, what is it? And so we would call it, what do you call it? But the instruction that Moses gave them was to, to gather the manna that was on the ground and to prepare it and they could eat it, but they weren't to have any leftovers. In the morning, they, you know, they weren't to keep any. And, but some people, they, they tried to keep some for the next day and we, we, we read that they, it, they found that it had maggots in it and, and it stank, so it was disgusting. So that happened on... On Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But on Friday, they were told to gather twice as much uh, because on the Saturday, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, there wasn't going to be any on the ground. And so what they did was they gathered twice as much and they prepared it. And in the morning, it didn't go off. It, it didn't have maggots in it. It didn't stink. And they get to get, got to keep it on the seventh day. And that was meant to be a day of rest. That's what Sabbath means. It means to stop work. And um, But... The, some of the Israelites this time, when they were told not to go out, they did go out and they didn't find anything to eat. Um, and, you know, that was, um, the people didn't realize that, that, that God had actually given them that seventh day as another part of his blessing. He's provided food for them. He's also provided rest for them. Now, we move on to chapter 17. In chapter 17, they have to move now to a new, new location again. And again, they raise a complaint. And the complaint is, we don't have any water. And so they, they have the same problem again. But this is where Moses says that they are putting God to the test. So this is the third mention of a test now. So verse 2, Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people... They start insisting, no, you took us out of Egypt to die of thirst in the wilderness. And uh, anyway, God is still graciously, he provides water for them. The way that he does it is that he takes Moses and he says, take your staff. He shows him a rock in the middle of the desert. He strikes the rock with his staff and water comes out of the rock. And they, that's what they drink. But they were told actually at the end of that story that the name of the place that they called it after that was 
Masa and Merivah, which means testing and quarreling because they put the Lord to the test. So God has tested the people, but the people have also tested God. Now, that's the section that we are going to concentrate on today. But actually, the, the next couple of sections, we can't read them. We can't even talk about them. But let me summarize them really quickly for you because they're so interesting. The next section at the end of chapter 17 is that the Amalekites, that's another people group in the wilderness, they come and attack the Israelites. And what Moses does, he sends his assistant, Joshua, to go fight the, lead the Israelites in battle. And Moses himself, he has to kind of go up on this hill and then raise his hands for like the entire time until the Israelites uh, win the battle. And so anyway, that's very interesting. We could talk about that, but we don't have time. Um, and then in chapter 18, another really interesting thing happens. Moses gets a, um, gets a visit from his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro is a Midianite priest. And, um, and he comes and visits Moses, and they both get something out of that interaction. So Mo, uh, Jethro comes along, and he hears about everything that the Lord has done for Moses, and he comes away praising uh, the God of Israel as the God above all the other gods. And so Jethro comes away, you know, enlightened. And uh, Moses, for his part, he, he comes away um, with a very valuable lesson as well, because what happens is... Um, uh, Basically, Jethro gives him some advice uh, about how he is to minister to the, to the people of, the, um, of Israel. And it probably, really, that piece of advice saves him from significant burnout. Um, he learns how to recruit other godly people into the ministry and, um, uh, and to work in partnership with others. Right, so it's fascinating stuff. We don't have time to talk about any of them. But what we are going to talk about is these three questions. Firstly, why is it right for God to test the people? Uh, why is God right for God to test us? Secondly, why is it wrong for us to test God? And thirdly, how do we pass the test? Okay, so that's uh, the three questions. And really what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make you do most of the work today. So um, why is it right for God to test us? And what I'd like you to do is just in your table groups or if... You don't, ah, uh, yeah, all of you have enough people on your table. Is to look at, uh, skim over Exodus 16 and ask these three questions. Uh, what were the instructions that God gave as a test? That shouldn't be a hard question to answer. Uh, how did the Israelites go with following those instructions? And I don't expect that to be a hard question to answer. And then what do you think was the purpose of those instructions? I think I'll give you four minutes to try to do those three questions on your tables. Alrighty, go for it. Yeah, the end of verse 4, it's saying, um, 
that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I'll call you back. I hope that was enough time. Maybe you guys over here at the back. What were the instructions that God gave as a test? Yeah, people over there. To, so each in verses 4 and 5, to gather enough for just that day. And on the sixth day, they have to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Great. And uh, yeah, that gets expanded in a couple of... Uh, places later in the chapter as well. That's good. Um, at, at the front over here, what? How did the Israelites go at following those instructions? Yeah, our stable people. They weren't that great at it, so some of them kept more. They were like greedy and kept extra for yeah. the next day, and then it got maggots. And... Some of them kept what wasn't to be kept, and some of them gathered what was not there to be gathered. So they didn't do super well. What about you guys at the back? What do you think was the purpose of the, the, the instructions that God gave to the Israelites? To test their obedience. To test their obedience? Yeah, I think that's definitely there, at the, on, especially on, just on a face value. It's a test of obedience. Will they follow the instructions or not? But it's deeper than blind obedience, isn't it? Because the basis of the command is that God himself is providing for them bread from heaven in the wilderness. That is, this is a test of faith. It's a test of trust. Will they trust God to provide? And even the Sabbath rest is a provision that... Um, requires trust. You see, one of the reasons why many, perhaps uh, among us who are high achievers, find it very difficult to rest is because we don't trust 
that God will provide for us. And we think that everything depends on us, on our hard work, on our uh, sweat. And we have no sense of God's grace, of His provision, of His fatherly care for us. And so uh, even the provision of rest requires us to trust in God. If you flip over a couple of pages in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, after God gives the Ten Commandments, Moses says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And so here's another reason that God might be testing us is so that we form a healthy fear of him and so that we don't sin. That is, it's for our own good, for our own godliness that God uh, gives us these instructions. And in Deuteronomy 8.16, you don't have to turn there right now, I'll just tell you, Moses reminds the people of this particular moment at, um, uh, you know, of him providing manna. This is what he says, God gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something that your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well for you. That this is a test of humility, an invitation for the Israelites to lose their self-centeredness so that in the end it would go well for them. You see, in the end, God wants their well-being. He wants them to be able to demonstrate their faith, to reveal their faith in a way that grows them in faith, that stops them from sinning, that helps them to fear the Lord God and so that it goes well for them. Uh, as they humble themselves before God. So why is it right for God to test us? It's because when God tests us, what he's doing is revealing who we really are, whether we really believe in his grace, whether we really trust that he is God. And he does it to grow us in that same faith. But if it's right for God to test us, why is it wrong for us to test God? So to answer this question, I'm going to get you back into your table groups And have a look at the first seven verses of Exodus 17. Now, for question one, where in the Bible does it say that we mustn't test God? Maybe you need someone on your table who who has a searchable Bible, or maybe you just need to have some really great general knowledge. Um, Where does it say that we mustn't test God? Number two, in Exodus 17, how do the people test God? And then number three, this is the one that I think is the trickiest out of the three questions. Uh, How do we test God today. So I'll give you another four minutes to go back into your table groups and and answer those questions. Ooh, you don't get that. Yeah. So the commandment, you just read this, you 
Right, we mustn't test God's truth, right? It means like we mustn't test God's we shouldn't test God at all because God is stronger than all of us. Alrighty, I'll give you 30 more seconds. Okay, here we go. Um, down the front here, why does, where in the Bible does it say that we mustn't test God? Yeah, Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. It's the same, it's coming back to this um, episode from Exodus 17 again. Uh, and some of you might have picked up that Jesus actually quotes that very verse in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 as well. Um, what about at the back in this corner? Um, in Exodus 17, how do the people test God? That's an excellent answer. So they um, complain about not having any water, but they're also accusing God of 
um, not being there for them. And um, so, yeah, you can see that in verse 2, right? So the first thing that happens is it's the people's quarreling with Moses that causes him to say, why do you put the Lord to the test? The fact that they've already seen God provide water back in chapter 15 and food in chapter 16 means that they ought to have come to Moses with far more patience, much more expectation of God's provision. But instead of being patient with God or with Moses, they, they escalate their complaint. In verse 3, they accuse Moses of bringing them into the desert to die of thirst. And in verse 4, Moses cries out to God because he says, they're, they're ready to stone me. Uh, in verse 7, though, we learn that the place is called Massah and Meribah, uh, which means testing and quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That is, at its heart, the Israelites' test toward God was really an accusation that God's not there. They weren't thinking rationally. They've been experiencing God's miracles and his presence for the last 10 chapters, if you've been reading through uh, Exodus. And they weren't asking an innocent question. You see, this was a quarrel. This was a complaint. And this was, the word that's used for quarrel is the word that you might use when someone's bringing a legal case against someone else. This is an an attempt to accuse God of being absent. And this is why it's wrong for us to test God, but it's right for God to test us. You see, when God tests us, his goal is to show our faith and to grow us in our trust toward him. But when we test God, it's actually a demonstration of our own unbelief. When we test God, we've already failed God's test because our starting point is to set ourselves against him. You see, um, and that, that tells us something about how we test God today. You see, as a society and as individuals, we're pretty good at grumbling. We're pretty good at complaining. We're pretty good at quarreling. We all have the spiritual gift of non-constructive feedback. <laughs> Just a short look on social media will prove the point. You know what, in in the negativity of our world today, it's easy to treat God that way as well. When we complain about others at church, we test God by questioning his provision of brothers and sisters in Christ. When we grumble about decisions made by church leaders, we test God by our impatience and our selfishness. When we quarrel about things that are not worth quarreling about, we show that we ourselves are not that different from the rest of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that there are no, there's no room for negative emotions within the church. The Bible has plenty of room for emotions like sadness and frustration, even for despair and for anger. But our faith must be deeper than our feelings. There's room for these experiences, even for godly conflict, when we come from a place of deep trust in God, in His presence, an assurance of His provision, in a belief in His power. But too often, we put God to the test because our worldly concerns are greater than our faith in God. 
You see, why is it wrong for God, us to test God? It's right for God to test us because His desire is to reveal who we are. But it's wrong for us to test God because instead of revealing Him, we reveal ourselves. The people's complaining and grumbling and quarreling didn't make God provide for them. You see, God was always, of course He was going to graciously provide for them. If He rescued them out of the hand of Egypt, if He brought them through uh, the Red Sea, of course He would feed them in the wilderness. But what the people did in testing God was in fact to show that they had already failed God's test. Well, this is, um, brings us to the, the practical and final question. How do we pass this test? How do we pass God's test? So for the last time, turn to the people um, around you. And this time I'd like you to um, read from Matthew chapter 4, a section of text that, sh that describes the very beginning of Jesus' ministry just after he's been baptized. And I want you to ask these three questions. How is Jesus like Israel in the wilderness? How is Jesus tested? And how does Jesus pass the test? I'll give you a few minutes to try to do that together.
Alrighty, I'll give you another 30 seconds. Okay, um, well, let's come back together. How is Jesus like Israel in the wilderness? Uh, hopefully you picked up that Jesus is deliberately stepping into the shoes of Israel at this particular point in the narrative. He's come through the waters of baptism and now he's in the wilderness for 40 days. It's a deliberate echo of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's being tempted by Satan through his need for food. And how is Jesus tested? Well, Satan comes and tests him three times. The first time Satan says, put your hunger first by creating bread out of stones. The second time he's tempted to prove his own faith by throwing himself off the top of a tall building and trusting that God will send his angels to catch him. And thirdly, he's tempted to put his own glory first and to receive everything that the world has to offer. And it's really interesting that every time Jesus is tested, the way that he responds is by quoting scripture. He's hungry but he doesn't put his hunger first. His faith is deeper than his feelings. He's presented with this false test of faith uh, in throwing himself down from the tower. And he recognizes that this is really a way to test God, not himself. Now, of all the people in the world, he's the one who really does deserve all the glory, all the kingdoms of the world. And yet he's the one, he doesn't put himself first. He's not self-centered. He trusts God to provide. And he doesn't need to provide, demand proof of God's presence. Um, Jesus does all the opposite things to what Israel has done. And he passes the test by doing the opposite of what Israel did. You see, the, the story of the Exodus, it's written down for people like us. It's written down for people who've been saved by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, but who live in the wilderness. People who have a sure hope, a promised land to which we're traveling, and yet we're not yet there. We haven't reached it yet. The wilderness stories of Exodus and the similar stories that are in the book of Numbers, they're written down so that we do not make the same mistakes as the people of Israel who were in the wilderness all those generations ago. And we pass the test by doing the opposite of what the Israelites did. You see, the Israelites failed because they grumbled and they, they complained, they quarreled. And that means we pass the test by showing humble patience. We must be marked by our willingness to wait on God's timing, 
to trust in his patience, in his power, in his promises, and in his goodness. And if we do, then we won't get caught up in meaningless arguments. We won't be continually complaining and asking for things to be different. We won't be grumbling and sulking and, uh, and about how things don't suit us. You see, we'll, we'll be able to embrace our situation, even if it's not easy, because we don't expect the wilderness to be our permanent home. Israel failed the test by trying to collect more than they needed. They were greedy. God had said, collect just what you need for today. And some of them tried to keep the leftovers for tomorrow's. God said, rest on the seventh day, and some of them tried to keep working without resting. Israel failed the test by their greed, and that means that we pass the test by our radical contentment and generosity. Uh, someone I heard this week said, God hasn't given you grace for a lifetime. He's given you grace for today. It's a provocative way of saying it, and maybe a bit counterintuitive, but this person's not saying that God's grace is limited. They're saying that uh, God's grace is not like the, the billion-dollar inheritance that just lands in your lap and you, you make it last for the rest of your life. It's more like a Centrelink payment that comes in every fortnight. It's enough for today, and if you trust, then it will be enough for tomorrow as well. If you... Uh, if you trust in God's provision. We have to pass, we pass the test by trusting God enough to be content with what we have for today. And I add generosity because in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous toward the poor, to give out of their abundance. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply their need, and in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, and then he quotes from Exodus 16. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. See, he applies this principle of everyone having just enough, collecting just enough in the wilderness, but he says that principle is worked out today by us meeting one another's needs. So that when one person has plenty, they supply the needs of the person who has little. And the one who has little, the way that God provides for them, that he, the way that God gives them enough, is through the generosity of others. And therefore, the way, one of the ways that in which we apply the principle of what, um, what the Israelites needed to learn was, is actually through not just our contentment, but our generosity as well. And finally, we pass the test um, by repentance and faith. Now, did you notice, have you noticed how Israel is really characterized very comically by their longing Egypt. They're always saying, back in the good old days, back when we were in Egypt, we had all the food we wanted, we had all the water we wanted, we had, um, we had such a good time. Look, back in Egypt, they were the ones crying out for freedom because they were slaves. And yet now, they're still longing for Egypt. They're showing that even though they've been rescued out of Egypt, their hearts haven't left their hearts are still in Egypt. That is to say, they haven't really repented. 
They haven't left behind their old life. They can't embrace what God is doing in their present. They can't embrace where God is leading them because they haven't really left in their hearts. And some of us, we are not passing the test because we haven't truly left Egypt. We haven't fully left behind the alternative gods that we trust in. We want God, but we also want achievement to, to save us. We want God, but we also want money to save us. We want God, but we also want marriage. We want romance to save us. We want politics to save us. We want all these other things to save us. And the only way for us not to have our hearts stuck back in Egypt is for us to repent, to truly smash those idols, to leave them behind and not turn back toward them. You see, it's not that all those things are, are bad things. But it's only when we truly trust God that we can achieve great things without it going to our heads. It's only when we trust God that we don't put the burden on our, on our husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend to be our Messiah. It's only when we put God first that money won't corrupt us. Now look, here's the bad news. We've all failed the test. I dare you to put up your hand if you've never grumbled or complained. Put up your hand if you haven't been greedy. Put up your hand if you've never put anything before your trust in God. The reality is that we all fail the test. And that's why we don't just need instructions and commands, rules and boundaries to, uh, for us to pass the test. We need a savior. We need a savior who, who will not just pass the test for themselves, but one who will carry us all the way, despite our failures, to the promised land through the wilderness. And you know what? We have one. The only one who has ever passed the test is Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Trust him and he will carry you through. And you'll find yourself utterly unlike Israel. You'll be full of generosity abounding in contentment, truly repentant, genuine in faith, not because you did it in your own strength, but because you received what you could not merit by grace. Uh, I'm going to pray and then someone else is going to pray for us as well. Uh, Lord, thanks so much that you, you give to us what we cannot have by ourselves. Even though we fail the test, Jesus Christ, he's passed the test for us. And not only that, he he carries us all the way through the wilderness into the promised land. Help us to trust in him and transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.